Put that coffee down. Coffee's for closers only. Hello, and welcome to Coffee with Closers, a podcast featuring a team of public relations professionals at Pinkston in Washington, D.C. From media personalities to pioneers in healthcare and disruptors in business, we talk with some of America's most interesting people who tell interesting stories. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get started. This is Coffee with Closers. Today, we talk to Kaizen co-founder and CEO, John Winner. Kaizen is a company that helps businesses streamline their processes and boost productivity and profitability with the help of an AI-enabled virtual assistant named Zoe. John shares his thoughts on how pandemic shift to remote work has changed the future of work. In particular, he explains why the 40-hour work week doesn't work and how advancements in technology have the real potential to give way to the adoption of the 25-hour week. And at a time when workers are squarely in the employment driver's seat, he outlines what companies can do to attract and retain the best talent in what he calls a time of the great renegotiation. As an entrepreneur, John started his first company when he was just 13 years old, fixing computers in his neighborhood. John Winner is a closer. All right. John Winner, how's it going? Welcome to Coffee with Closers. Awesome. So excited to be here with you, Steve and Hannah. How are you doing today? Doing wonderful. Doing wonderful. Lots to talk about. Elon Musk is uh, is bringing us lots of questions, so we'll, we'll get right to it. Uh, our topic today, John, obviously we're going to be talking about the, the current state of the workforce. Uh, 47 million Americans, as you know, voluntarily left their job during covid uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, revealed a survey, I think, at the World Economic Forum in Davos recently that said one in five workers globally uh, plan on sort of uh, switching jobs likely in the next 12, 12 months or so. Um, you've acknowledged that people aren't quitting to quit. People are quitting and seeking other opportunities, obviously pay, flexibility, and other benefits. But you also said to me, I think in a conversation we had, that the, that the great resignation isn't real at all. Um, what did you mean by that? Yeah, at the time we had that conversation, there was a lot of coverage in the media that indicated that people were just resigning and not going to work anymore anywhere. Yeah. And while that was happening uh, in certain parts of the population and in certain parts of the world, really what we were seeing was more of what I think the great renegotiation was more an accurate label, yeah. right? And so you were seeing this um, unprecedented era of, you know, worker rights, worker control, worker power. Um, and people had seen how productive they could be at home. Um, and we were seeing, uh, and we're still in a recreation of what should work look like for us and what, how do we want work to look as team members? And so that's where I think the great renegotiation is a, is a more accurate label. And, It'll be interesting to see, you know, how that continues to trend. Interesting point. So there's a little bit of a competing narrative here. Uh, Kaizen did a survey earlier this year, which showed surprisingly 
uh, 60% of so-called knowledge workers, those who work at a computer for at least a couple of hours a day, uh, are pretty satisfied with their job. And they had no uh, considerations of quit or leaving. Um, so there seems to be some level of contentment in the workforce. What, how, do you, um, how do you account for this, uh, this competing narrative? Yeah, well, even when you have, you know, six or 10 percent of a massive workforce, just like here in the United States, changing jobs, that's millions of people. Right. And so it can be correct that millions of people or even tens of millions of people are unhappy. But it can also be correct that 150 million people are happy. Um, And so it's very possible to report on both sides of those, uh, you know, spectrums, however, you know, the survey honestly surprised us with some of the results about how happy people were feeling in their jobs and, and what they were prioritizing. And I think a lot of that comes from companies also seeing what was happening and a lot of companies responding to these trends really intelligently. That's interesting because I told someone about that number and they're like, well, that's not really that good. And I was like, well, if you compare it against, you know, the news stories and the headlines, it's actually really good. So very cool. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Yeah, Absolutely. Another interesting trend we're seeing is that many workers who switched their jobs during COVID are now regretting it. Um, In a recent Harris USA Today survey, um, 20% of workers who quit their jobs in the last two years wish they hadn't done so. Um, They cite reasons of loss of work-life balance, different job expectations, um, and missing companies' cultures, followed by improperly weighing their pros and cons of quitting. Um, clearly money isn't everything. What do you make of this and where were the missteps? Yeah, I think it's tricky understanding the type of work you want to do, understanding what your job is actually going to be. It's been a time of such change right now that sometimes the job you sign up for isn't the job that you actually end up getting. So I think what we see consistently and what we think about with our team internally here at Kaizen, as well as with the teams that we work with, is sort of a pyramid like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but for people's work needs. And we actually coach candidates and employees to be thinking about this throughout their careers. And at the bottom, that core need that you have is work does need to have a payment associated with it, right? How much are we getting paid for the work? And we also see in the survey that that is rated highest in importance for people when they think about their job as a whole. However, what you also see is flexibility is now in that second position, right? And that's been an evolving situation where, you know, if you took a remote job at Tesla, that may be changing. Um, And so it'll be interesting to see how that can create dissatisfaction or changes for people. Um, Next, you have your coworkers and culture. And it can be tricky when you're interviewing with a company to really understand what is that culture like? So I really recommend that people try to talk to as many people at that company as they can and really get a feel. Nothing's perfect, right? So, you know, having people actually explain, you know, the weaknesses uh, to a specific company, I think is a good way to understand, are they being objective when they're speaking to you? And then the last piece you have is, is work interesting and meaningful? And am I finding purpose in that work? And so I think it's okay that people take a job and one year in, they're like, you know what, this wasn't everything that I want and and maybe you switch again. I think there's that journey to figuring out what you want to do and it's in the company's best interest. And frankly, I think, you know, employees are are happier when you can have a great marriage of uh, interests and uh, alignment in what both are trying to achieve. 
Yeah, absolutely. What do you think companies and organizations need to do now to recreate um, these better workplace situations? Great question. So I think that there needs to be a lot of dialogue with teams. I think when you look at the best practices of how this uh, kind of narrative is evolving at the highest level of companies, um, you know, there's an emphasis on flexibility, right? There's an emphasis on really allowing the teams at their base levels to um, decide what is best for how they want to work. I think that you are going to obviously see remote work be much bigger than it was before, hybrid work be much bigger than before. And I think companies are trying to figure out which ones of my roles are going to be primarily on site. Obviously, some roles you have to do on site uh, entirely, like in manufacturing, for example. Um, and then you have the hybrid roles and the completely remote roles. So I think at, like companies asking, how do we want to balance that? And then ensuring that they have both processes and technology to support the way that their teams want to work. Um, the reality is the majority of large companies already had multiple locations and were already doing Zoom meetings, video calls, things like that before the pandemic. So a lot of this infrastructure was in place. It just really has accelerated because of the pandemic. Interesting. And, and John, real quick, uh, back to an earlier question, for those workers who are working in fully remote jobs and they're in the interview process, is there a quote unquote company culture when you're fully remote? Is there ways that workers can figure that out? Absolutely. Um, one of the most interesting articles that's been coming out really around fully remote, this is interesting in a negative way, it's all the companies that are trying to install trackers onto people's computers and then employees saying, I'm never going to work at a place with a tracker. And then new apps being invented that move the mouse around, right? So a lot of that is stuff where you want to understand, okay, is this a healthy remote culture? Um, from the point of view of how are my key performance indicators established? What is my relationship with management? What are the major things we're thinking about as a group? Yep. I think also a question to ask, and this might be whether someone's interested in it or not, is, is there any in-person meetups? Mm -hmm. A lot of the best practices around remote work still involves, obviously post-pandemic, getting people together on some sort of cadence, whether it's quarterly or annually, um, to have some in-person connection as well. So I think that's interesting. And one of the things that we do with all of our remote teams is we just do hangout sessions. So once a week, 30 minutes, every fully remote team has a hangout session that on the calendar, it just says, talk about whatever's deemed important in the moment. Cool. And so uh, usually later in the week, talk about plans, have that personal connection, right? Because there is some value to really knowing, you know, the people that you work with. And for a lot of our team, it becomes one of the things that they love most about that. And that was something that we created as people were feeling more disconnected um, in the pandemic. And we will absolutely be keeping that even as we return to office. Oh, that's interesting. You also said as one of your, I think it was your five or six core principles, um, flexibility was very important for workers, making sure that they either had a hybrid or a flexible schedule to ensure that they could do their work, get it done, and also have time for other uh, family responsibilities, daycare, et cetera. Um, and there's another hot debate going on right now. Recently, Elon Musk said that uh, <laughs> 40 hours or, or at least and back in the office. Uh, but there's a lot of push and a lot of talk about maybe reducing 48 hours, 40 hours. I know in California, there's a legislative proposal. I think it's for companies that have more than 500 employees 
that if they work over 32 hours, they, they need to get overtime. Um, you say the 40 hour work week does not work. Why doesn't it work? Well, the 40 hour work week can work in some ways, but I think there's a better way. And I think when you look at the trend of work overall, yep. the first data you start seeing is really in the late 1800s where people were working on average 3,200 to 3,400 hours a year, right? Mm -hmm. So you're talking about 60 hour work weeks. Mm -hmm. And when you track that data, you see that over the past 150 years, it's come down quite significantly and that trend is continuing to go down to the point where the average in America today is actually less than 40 hours a week. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that the pandemic showed a lot of people was that their job might not actually take them the full 40 hours, even though they needed to be in the office the full 40 hours. Mm -hmm. So our mission as a company is actually to make you know people more efficient in 25 hours than they used to be in 45 hours, right? Yeah. And that's by working more efficiently, working smarter, better using data, using automation to assist with tasks, right? And fundamentally, the reason why the 40-hour work week should be evolved is because when we think about the overall life plan and building really happy people and employees and civilizations, which I think should be our goal, not to say you need to be in your desk 40 hours a week. It should be we're building a happier, you know, uh, ecosystem across all of our stakeholders, right? Yeah. Um, we should be asking how can we get people to have a more balanced, healthier, happier life. And when I just build a time budget and I imagine all of the commitments that someone with, you know, a family and hobbies and um, you know all the different parts of their life that creates a really happy life. It's and fitness and health. It's difficult to accomplish all of that in a week. Yeah. And so as we see work take a little less time, we see happiness start to rise. We see health start to rise. And so I think that's why there's just such a natural uh, movement that we're going to see over the coming years towards a lower average amount of uh, work hours. Wow, that's interesting. Well, I hope it comes Super to fruition. <laughs> yes. Um, talk to us more about the 25 to 30 hour work week and the potential um, for it to eventually be adopted worldwide based on advances in technology. How, how else can we do this? Yeah, um, I think it's going to be around automation. Uh, I think that people don't yet realize how much intelligent automation is going to change things over the coming months to years. This isn't something that we're thinking about in 2040 or 2050. This is a 2020s reality thing where we're already seeing processes in place where people are becoming one and a half to two and a half times efficient at their day-to-day -day work, right? And so we have a, a virtual assistant that we call Zoe. And really the key, what's, what's unlocking this technology is a few things because this technology has existed for a while, but it's been really difficult and expensive to implement. And so there's three breakthroughs that are happening now that are leading to these changes. Um, the first is that people are really starting to integrate their data between different systems. In the past, automation has had difficulty actually being helpful because it wasn't doing the right things. It's like imagine a person. If they don't have access to the right data, they're not going to make the right decisions and take the right next actions. So we're finally starting to see the ability for companies to more easily unify their data. 
On top of that, what you're also seeing is the ability and the rise of no-code tools, which is empowering much larger group of the population to be able to build these assistants and build skills with them. Instead of only having the small fraction of the population that's really good at coding being able to access this stuff, mm -hmm. right? And then the third thing that you're seeing is you're seeing the computing power, right? You're seeing the cloud servers, you know, all the major providers that are available. They've lowered the cost of entry to deploy the technology. And so those three pieces coming together is what is allowing such a rapid adoption that I think when we look back in 2027 on what's happened over the past five years, we're going to be amazed at what we've been able to accomplish to both make our work lives easier, make our businesses more profitable and impactful, and make our customers happier. And that's the magic, right? When you can have all three of those things happen at the same time, something magical is there. And that's why it's starting to grow so fast now is because it's, it's happening. In terms of flexibility, the pandemic has also created the great resistance, which we talked about, um, where workers who enjoyed um, work from home privileges during COVID now want those privileges extended, maybe even indefinitely. Um, it's setting up kind of a tug of war between employees and employers who want their workers back in office. Um, where do you see this trend going? Uh, what does the physical office environment look like post-pandemic? Yeah, uh, great question and super interesting topic. So first of all, there is still a supply and demand issue where there's not enough supply right now of, you know, there's too many jobs for too few workers. And so that means that the power dynamic is going to continue to be on the side of the employees. And so my expectation is that, you know, when you've seen big companies so far come out and say, we're going to have these aggressive return to the office, you know, strategies, which Amazon and Google and Facebook and Apple have all tried, as well as the financial institutions like the JP Morgans and the Goldman Sachs, they've all softened their approach, you know, <laughs> a few weeks or a month or two later, right? Yeah. And so that's interesting. Now we have the most recent one where Elon Musk says, you're totally welcome to work remote after you get your 40 hours done in the office. That's wild. Hilarious. Um, and so I do think, you know, when, when Apple came out with their culture and, and, and they said, we want to go back to the office and they really tried to enforce this. It was really interesting because at the time I was thinking, you know what? really smart executive group, they must have made the calculations that, you know, being in the office is so important to what we create and what we build in our culture, that it is worth the churn and the loss of employees that we're going to have, wow. um, you know, by people who, who just want to work remotely exclusively. Right. Um, and the development community is one that's very opinionated when we do internal surveys on, on wanting to work more remotely. Um, which is obviously a big part of what, what Apple does. And so uh, it's interesting to see that after a few weeks and after that transition and churn and feedback, even them said, you know what, okay, we're going to be more flexible. I think that what's going to happen is there are people that also really enjoy the office. We asked our team, like, hey, should we close the office? Should we reallocate those funds into different things? 
And about 40% of our staff said, absolutely not. The, wow. the office is super important. Yeah. Um, and 80% of our sales, marketing, and customer success teams really want to come into the office. They said three or more days a week, right? So they love that camaraderie that they have. And so I think you're going to see kind of a choose your own adventure experience, both in the each individual companies, as well as in the you know job market as a whole, where there will be certain companies that are, you know, more focused on, you know, office based stuff. And there will be more, comp- there will be companies that go completely remote. And over the course of the next three to five years, the business, you know, results will tell the tale. What we've proven in the pandemic is that we can work remotely really effectively, right? And it's extra work for managers to maintain culture remotely, but we think and that it's worth putting in that extra energy to make that happen. So I think they're both going to be a big part of things and um, individual companies, it'll be interesting to see if the ones that really force the return to office perform better over time. Wow. So just so I'm clear, a lot of these companies like Amazon and Google, these guys have like college campuses, right? With daycare yeah. and dry cleaning and game rooms. And so you're saying that the, the, the companies that have gambled on workers coming back, that what the what they offer in terms of amenities on site and maybe maybe the benefit packages are really, really good. They're going to take the risk that if we lose some people, then we've accounted for that. It's well, that's what I thought at first. And then yeah. when they rolled back the policies, you know, they they were like, OK, never mind. Hold on. What do we need to do to get people back? Yeah. I think when you look at the history of offices too, the density in a lot of these offices that people aren't wanting to go back to is really high. Right. right? Yeah. So the amount of workers that you have per square foot or per thousand square feet or 10,000 square feet. And so I think you're going to see a shift to the way that offices are built to give people more space, more quiet time. Like, I don't think the boiler room is going to be as popular in the post-COVID era, which obviously <laughs> none of the companies were calling them boiler rooms. Oh, that's but, funny. you know, they were very dense, very loud places where it was difficult to think. It was emotionally overwhelming, contributing to a lot of people having stress. And then when they're working at home, they're feeling more relaxed and they go into the office, they feel stressed again. They go, oh, I don't want that. Yeah. So... Um, I personally, just to be very clear, am a believer that the office is a really valuable part of my work experience. And I really enjoy that our leadership team is very involved in the office and that we have a lot of the team that comes in. It's great and easier for me as a leader to build a deeper relationship. But I also have team members and direct reports that come in once to twice a week or some not at all. And so it's important for me as a leader to build out, you know, reach out and build those relationships and put that extra effort in. Because if someone's unhappy, it's really easy to see if you just see them around the office. Yeah. But yeah. if they're unhappy and they're at home and you don't have just kind of that observation at the water cooler um, or seeing those micro expressions in meetings, that's trickier and that's harder. And you can probably um, di- you can probably diffuse problems a little bit better, too, in person. Yeah, that's a huge advantage. So when there's conflict between team members, you know, it's like, let's say, you you know, you have people that are very passionate about something that they're wanting to build. They're both coming from places of good intentions, but they don't agree. Right. If If the only interaction that they have is a Zoom meeting on Tuesday and another Zoom meeting two weeks later, 
that's a recipe for some potential issues. And so that's another great thing for managers to be paying attention to, which is if you have two people that aren't seeing them, you know, each other in person, trying to create more touch points for them to bridge any differences is important. Interesting. So speaking of Kaizen, um, you talked a little bit about your company and you've got this, uh, you have this AI enabled virtual assistant Zoe, which is pretty interesting. Um, you talked a little bit about why you started uh, Kaizen. I believe it was in 2018 and then launched in 2021 with your business partner, Scott. Um, talk to us about a couple of the problems that you saw and why, where is Kaizen meeting that need? And I, and I know a lot of it probably had to do with some stove piping and siloed uh, processes, but what were the, some of the major hurdles that you saw co- companies were, were facing that, that, and a need that you're addressing now? Absolutely. So our background was as management and marketing consultants. Before that, I had started four other companies that I served as the founder and CEO on. So we took a unique uh, approach towards being consultants, which is that we were very focused on driving profitable, efficient growth. Mm -hmm. And so that worked really well as a focus area for us. It was a unique differentiator. We drove a lot of great results. But what we saw was that there was this explosion of tools that teams and companies were using. And it was a great time in technology development where specialized tools were being developed for different needs around the business. Then that was super helpful, but it created an unintentional uh, challenge, which is that key data is now living in dozens or hundreds of different systems, which made it really difficult to drive better you know, customer and prospect experiences, as well as know what was really driving the revenue and profit in your business. Mm-hmm. And so we would work with companies to unite these different systems. Um, the systems generally also were a little tricky to use. They didn't work exactly the way that team members wanted. Um, adoption was a little tricky with what we call the legacy tools, the tools that were basically built pre-2015 that are most of the leaders today. And so it was coming from that place of wanting to drive more efficient growth, wanting to build tools and solutions that users really loved, and just fundamentally seeing that I felt that companies were leaving at least half of their potential on the table to impact and build a better world. And so I turned to Scott and we had actually been having this conversation for years because we had sent in hundreds of pages of feature requests to over 100 different technology providers. You know, can you tweak this? Can we make this a little easier? Can we add this functionality? I turned to him and I said, I really think there's going to have to be a new approach that starts with unifying all aspects of the business, not just the traditional customer relationship stuff, sales, marketing, service, customer success, but also the traditional finance side of things, Mm -hmm. the purchases and the costs. And if you were able to bring that information all together, the accuracy in the insights that you'd be able to provide would just be off the charts and your ability to react um, based on what was going on with the data, what the insights are, deliver personalized solutions would be so much higher. Yeah, that's so interesting. that was sort of the experience we had that, that led to this. So when it comes to taking care of your employees, you don't just uh, you don't just talk the talk, but you also walk the walk from what I understand. Um, 
So talk about some of the things you're doing to make Kaizen a quote unquote dream job, as 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 they say. I, I'm particularly interested in this uh, week off in the summer that you give your employees. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So that's been very popular. Uh, we've experimented with actually different versions of vacation. So this has been a good learning experience over the past few years. Yeah. We started with unlimited vacation because we thought like, wow, that's a really good benefit. Yeah. But then what we found, you know, about 18 months in is that people were taking significantly less vacation than they were when they had assigned vacation days. Yeah. And we're like, well, that wasn't the goal. You know, we believe that vacation is a really important part of, um, you know, having a refreshed, healthy, awesome team. Um, and so what we ended up switching to is a set number of days with an accrual schedule that makes sure that people are actually using their vacation days, wow. you know, every quarter, that they're actually building them into their life. What we also emphasize with that, what we saw, you know, is, a lot of times people go on vacation, but they don't disconnect. Oh, They're yeah. still checking their emails, you know, and, you know, responding to phone calls and texts. And, you know, it's like the gray zone where you're not at work and you're not at home. And that's just something overall that's a really big emphasis for our culture, which is when you're at work, let's get our work done. Let's do it as efficiently and fast as possible. Um, and then when you're home, let's enable you to be able to disconnect you know, unless you're on call for some emergency, you should be able to have that disconnect entirely, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that's what led us to seeing this one week off for, you know, the entire company because it's like now no one has to worry about I'm holding someone else up, you know, or there's just some sort of issue that's waiting on me. I know that we can all disconnect during that time. So that was the origin of that idea as well as just our our policy to really have people disconnect during vacation. Yeah. So that's certainly one critical area that I think is special about what we're building. Um, we practice a 360-degree uh, um, uh, management philosophy here with our team, um, which is really helping understand you know, each individual employee and how they're wanting to build their career and mm -hmm. how their job fits into their life at different life stages. Mm -hmm. So, you know, different people might want to invest more heavily in work at certain stages of life, and then they may have family events going on, you know, either with families expanding or, you know, you know with uh, care of a loved one that they're having to take care of. And so McKinsey, I believe, did the study that was really uh, published pre-pandemic about um, how if you give people the opportunity to customize their, um, you know, plans for their careers, um, they're much more engaged. And yeah. so beyond that, beyond the how much do you want to work, there's a conversation about what are you wanting to create in your career, right? We don't do performance reviews here in Kaizen. We do career planning. And uh, that is a really important um, process where it's like what skills are we helping you build to get you to where you want to go. Some people are, I'm right where I want to be. Other people are looking to move into different divisions. They want to try things out. They want to figure things out. And so we want to build a plan where we're retaining them. We're building a great uh, career path for them. Wow. Uh, beyond that, we provide a health benefit. And so that health benefit is uh, in the form of a gym. Uh, as well as a incredibly uh, aggressive uh, healthcare program, you know, uh, from the insurance companies, 
um, to really make sure that people are taken care of. They have access to the best healthcare. They have access to a gym that's mostly paid for by the company. Um, and so those are some of the high level benefits that we think about, um, you know, with the team. Yeah, that's really wonderful. Good stuff. That's yeah, great. that is. You started your first company, Winter Computing, when you were 13 years old, charging $40 an hour to help fix home computers in your neighborhood. Um, what's the best advice you have for aspiring entrepreneurs in terms of turning their idea or solution into a source for good? Awesome. Love entrepreneurship. Love people <laughs> who are getting started with entrepreneurship at any part of life. And I would say there's two things, there's, let's say three things that are really important to understand. So when you're starting any sort of business, the first thing is who am I going to be working with? Who is my customer? What is it that they really need? Business to me is relatively simple. You go, they're reasonably happy. Like if you imagine a smiley face on one side with a reasonable size smile, and then you're moving down the timeline and helping them get to a big smile, right? And so really understanding who is that customer that you want to serve, what is the problem that they're having, and how can I help them with that, right? Having an obsession with the customer is super important. That also then plays into your financial model, right? Mm -hmm. And understanding how exactly is this business going to make money, right? What is going to be the monetization? Is it going to be profitable? Like that's one of the, the key things to think about. And then the third thing is get started, go. Don't yeah. spend too much time on those first two things. You're going to learn a lot of it as you get going. Service-based businesses are awesome to start with because they don't require much money to get started. Uh, they can be a side hustle, whether you're a middle schooler um, or, you know, a, a professional, you know, in your career. Um, and those are businesses that you can start without risking, you know, and taking away from, from the other things that you're doing. So that would be some of the things I'd think about at the top. And don't be afraid to fail, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Embrace that. Um, and, you know, be understand that that's part of the journey and, you know, you learn from it, right? As long as you get some learnings, you know, you're able to move forward stronger and better and, uh, and go from there. Cool. All right, John, um, we have one last question here for you. Um, so when it comes to the future of work, you are, um, I would say forever an optimist. Um, you obviously see that <laughs> you see the confluence of, of technology solutions and humanity creating sort of endless possibilities for the future. My question is this, um, as an innovator, is there anything that keeps you up at night? Anything that worries you? Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, and I don't know if this is related, but you know, there's a lot of talk today about, we have so much technology today, we communicate in more ways than ever. We're tied to our phones. You know, we're texting endlessly all day. Um, and some would say that maybe maybe we have too much communication. Maybe we have too much technology. Whatever it is, um, what, what, what keeps you up at night in terms of what you see around the bend? Yeah, I am definitely very optimistic about the role of technology and then the corresponding role of education to help us build an awesome life for everyone. Yeah. Um, what keeps me up at night is the areas where people are struggling, the areas mm -hmm. where people aren't happy. We still have some really big problems as a civilization that we need to solve. So there's a great book called The Rational Optimist. Mm -hmm. which I think looks at, you know, look, we've solved a lot of problems in the world, but there's still a lot of problems that we need to solve. 
And so there's absolutely examples of technology going too far, maybe contributing to people's unhappiness, maybe yep. providing improper solutions. Yep. And that's kind of part of the process of getting things better. I think that here in 2022, we have come an incredible way since you know humans first started on this planet. We've solved a ton of problems, but there's still a lot that we need to do. And that to me is exciting. So what keeps me up at night is is the concerns of, you know, how fast can we solve some of these problems that we have here in the United States, globally. That's where the urgency comes from. That's where a lot of my drive and passion. And I think that's shared amongst, you know, a lot, if not all great executives, team members, individual contributors, entrepreneurs is making that difference, helping bring the world to where we know it can be. And the question is, how quickly can we get it there? Yeah. And I don't know the answer, but I want to work towards making that happen as quickly as possible. Interesting. One last question I got to ask you. Why do you think Elon Musk doubled down on on 40-hour work week so hard like he did? Especially since it goes against the entire narrative of what we're talking about. Is there? Do you think there's a particular reason why he made such hay about it? Yeah, well, I think everyone that's familiar with, you know, Elon's companies knows that they are companies where you are going to have to work extremely hard, put in a lot of hours. And, um, you know, a lot of the people spend a number of years at those companies, not necessarily their entire career. So it's an opportunity to contribute to, you know, some of the most meaningful work that's getting done. And I think Elon sees that he's going after extremely ambitious stuff and trying to bring that timeline into the present as much as possible. And uh, I think that it's like when you choose to work for a company, you're signing up for that culture as well. Yep. I don't think anyone's signing up to work at Tesla or SpaceX without also knowing this is going to be a brutal amount of work that I'm about to do, but I want that experience. I want to see what that's like. I believe in the mission of what they're creating, right? And Elon has a unique ability to evangelize and build that workforce. I think it's going to be incredibly interesting to see the reaction towards this. And I also think that Tesla will continue to have remote jobs, (laughs) as will SpaceX, fully remote jobs where you don't have to come into the office 40 hours. But we'll see. Um, We'll see how that goes. We'll see how that evolves. Um, Elon is inspirational in what he's been able to achieve. I think all of us as as business leaders need to take notes on certain areas because it's undeniable the results that he's had. Um, But that doesn't mean that there's not different styles. And you need to build the organization that, you know, aligns with what you and your team are wanting. And so, um, love Elon, love what he's doing. Super intrigued to see how, you know, if he has the same issues that Apple, Amazon, Google's had, uh, or if he's the one who actually has the breakthroughs. So yeah, should be interesting. interesting. Well, the debate goes on. John, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate all your insights about technology and all things related to work. I'm Steve Burke. And I'm Hannah Nine. We'll see you next time on Coffee with Closers. A, B, C. A, always B, B, C, closing. Always be closing. Always be closing. We're the Pinkston team, and this has been Coffee with Closers. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes and follow us on Twitter, TikTok, and LinkedIn. Catch us next time. We know you're not busy.